morning. We're going to continue our series this morning in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be back on track sequentially moving through it. Last week we took a brief detour deeper into the Gospel and looked at Luke 7. We're, we're backing up again now to Luke chapter 2. So we're continuing our series Kingdom Come in Luke's Gospel. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love it if you'd follow along in your own Bible. If you don't have one, that's fine. The text should be up on the screen as we're reading it. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2, the first 20 verses. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee and the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days... When Jesus was circumcised, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The word of the Lord, may he write its truth upon our hearts. Father, Lord, we confess our weakness this morning. Lord, even if we don't feel weak, it is only because we are not aware. Lord, we are in need of your grace. We are in need of a power and a strength that is beyond our own resolve. So God, we ask for grace right now. Your power is made perfect in our weakness. We want to boast in our weakness so that it might magnify your grace in our lives. Lord, comfort us in our weakness. Speak to us in our weakness. Strengthen us in our weakness this morning in the preaching of your word through the power of your spirit. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 2 is a familiar text. It's a text that's usually preached at Christmas, right? That's when you'll usually hear it. It's deeply connected with the Christmas season, which is why I'm excited we're preaching it in February. We get to break out of that tradition a little bit. Growing up, I remember this text constantly being associated with that Christmas season. This is the text that they would build the Christmas service around and build the Christmas program around. So if you were like me and you grew up in the church, that meant you kind of rotated between like an authentic Christmas program and then like a cheesy one the next year with like Salty the Singing Psalter, right? You guys remember Salty? (laughs) I grew up with Salty. This life-size blue book. (laughs) But on the non-salty years, you would go to Luke 2 and you would have the whole nativity scene. And I remember as a kid, there were certain characters you wanted to be and certain characters you didn't want to be. I always wanted to be a shepherd. And the reason was really simple. Our church had really cool shepherd staffs. And so you got to hold the shepherd staff. And when the ladies who were running the Christmas program weren't looking, you got to attack your fellow participants with the staff. You got to weaponize the shepherd's staff. The rod and staff did not bring comfort in my hands when I was a kid. (laughs) I love those Christmas programs. If we did well, my mom would always bribe us. If you memorize your little scripture for it, you got to open a present early, and so we would work our hardest. But that was the association I've always had with Luke 2. It's probably an association you have with Luke 2 if you're familiar with Luke's gospel. I love that we get to look at it in February, though, outside of the Christmas season, because I think it gives us an opportunity to look at Luke's gospel, to look especially at Luke chapter 2 and the infancy narrative about the birth of the Messiah with fresh eyes. We get to blow away the cobwebs of familiarity and to look again at this astounding story. To do that this morning, I want us to look at some of the characters in the story. That's what we're going to do. We're going to work our way through looking at some of the characters. We're not going to touch on Mary and Joseph. We've looked at Mary previously in our series, but we're going to look at some of the other people we encounter. So first, as we work our way through Luke's narrative, really right off the bat, we encounter Caesar. Caesar Augustus. He's probably one of the characters least associated with Jesus' birth. When you think of Luke 2, if you had to give a list of the characters who are mentioned, you might not even think of him. Caesar Augustus is born Octavius, Gaius Octavius. He's actually the great nephew of Julius Caesar, right? He's a member of the second triumvirate of Rome. The triumvirate, the second triumvirate, which avenged Caesar's murderers, e tu, Brutus, that guy. He brings in with the second triumvirate a measure of peace, but then he goes to war with his rivals. The whole Mark Anthony and Cleopatra saga happens with him. He is able to depose Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony commits suicide. And so this Caesar Augustus is actually the first emperor of the Roman former republic. That's who this character is. His reign, his rule that we see briefly mentioned, marks the beginning of the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace that would spread throughout the entire Mediterranean world. It's a, it's a period where, where fighting within the empire ceases. Up to this point, there's constant 
factions vying for power in the empire. Well, now that stops and it ceases. And as this peace goes throughout the land and throughout the Mediterranean world, from Spain to Greece to Alexandria to the Levant to Palestine, you're able to travel without fear. We just take for granted getting on I-70 and heading west to Colorado or east to St. Louis and, and not being concerned about bandits, right? That wasn't the case prior to this peace resting over the land. Caesar is a blip on the radar screen of the narrative, which is ironic because, humanly speaking, he's the most well-known and most powerful character in the whole story. And in that, Luke is teaching us something. Caesar decrees a census, it says, for the entire world. It's just the arrogant way of recognizing outside of the Roman Empire, there really wasn't a world that existed worth knowing. He decrees a census for the entire world. It's this remarkable statement. It's a move that Caesar Augustus, formerly Gaius Octavius, makes to display his sovereign power, his significance and magnificence as an emperor. His word is law and his authority is unrivaled. At his bidding, everyone in the Roman Empire, think of those maps in your head from high school history class, Everyone in that vast Roman Empire is to return home, put their lives on hold, stop their businesses, pack up their families, and return to the home of their birth. Why? So they can be registered for taxes. Luke's point, in part, is this. He mentions Caesar, he mentions Quirinius, because he wants to make the point, remember he's writing to Theophilus, an orderly account. What follows isn't an origins myth. It's not the early church going back and trying to write up a really cool story about how it all got started. That, that's not what's happening. What Luke is doing is showing us this is real history. It's not just a story for a, a certain season of the year. This is something that really happened on a real day. There was a real man and a real woman who traveled by donkey to a real city. And there was a real baby boy that was born. It's fact. And Luke says it's a fact. And we know it's a fact because you can look. And it happened during this time in the reign of Caesar Augustus when this census was taken. But he's also including Caesar as a character by means of contrast. He orders people around, Caesar does, for his own ends... This, this raw display of power, which for Caesar is just meant to pad his purse. We're going to have a census so I can know how many people are in my empire and I can make sure I'm getting enough money. But behind this is a sweet providence of God. Caesar engages his sovereignty because God has employed his providence. If we're not aware, I mean, the name of the church is Providence Community Church. The founding pastor and those families that planted the church picked the name Providence. And if you're not aware, there can almost be this sense that the word Providence is, is like a cold word. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Providence is the notion of God employing His supreme power and gathering all His authority and providentially exercising it our special care and for his glory. 
we're seeing walked out the truth of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart, the most sovereign and free heart in all the land, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's amazing to consider. God ordained that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, right? The prediction, the prophecy. The baby, the heir of David, will be born in David's city. Lowly, humble Bethlehem. God has chosen Mary to be the mother. We, we've read that in Luke chapter 1. This, this young girl who's betrothed to this man Joseph, a nobody carpenter, but he's not from Judea, the land that Bethlehem is found in. He's from Galilee. He's from Nazareth. Now, there are all sorts of ways God can get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, right? There are countless ways God can figure out how to make that happen. Up to this point in the story, how would you assume he's going to make it happen? An angel appears to Mary and Joseph and says, go to Bethlehem, right? But that's not what he does. He doesn't just tell them to go. Instead, God displays that everything occurring in this gospel even in all of human history, is playing out according to his providentially kind guidance. God puts it in the heart of Caesar to call a census. A census where each is registered in their hometown. It's the sweetest of providences as Caesar looks to exert his power. It can be really easy to look at the world, right, and just feel insignificant. Feel like you're just a blip in history. There's big things that happen, and they might affect you, but you're not really a part of those big things. But it's here in Luke chapter 2 that we're reminded, because of God's providence, because he takes all of his sovereign power and all of his authority, which with he marshals the entire universe, and he takes all of that and providentially he puts it to work for the good of his people and the glory of his name. You aren't insignificant. The things happening in your life aren't just circumstantial irrelevances. How many people on the roads with Mary and Joseph are just frustrated by the inconvenience of this edict? This is not a day of easy travel. There's no minivans with stow-and-go seating and automatic doors where you don't even have to like pull the lever. You just push a button and the door is open and, and everything's so nice and there's video DVD players that, that come down. And so the kids are just like, inundated with, with movies and they don't even make silence in the backseat. That, that's not what's happening as these people go to their hometowns. You get on donkeys. You, you get on animals if you have money, hopefully. You caravan with large groups of people, but you walk dusty roads and you go over miles. It's hard and it's difficult. How many people are sitting there wondering, like, why? What is, what is, what is going on? How often do we get tempted like that just in our own lives? Lord, what is the point of this circumstance? Why is this happening? Why isn't this happening? Well, in Luke chapter 2, we're reminded that God is working all things providentially because of His mercy for the redemption of His people. 
That's what we see in that little blip of the character Caesar. The next character we see is a group of characters. It's the angels. And in the angels, we see the glory of the gospel, the good news, the evangel. Now, it's important to go here. In one sense, it's kind of strange. Like, what what example are you going to get from angels? They're not even human characters, right? Well, it is important because the angels, the Greek word actually literally means messenger. These angels are quite literally God's heralds. Hark the herald angels sing, right? Glory to the newborn king. It's the message of the angels. They speak for God and they're delivering the news. Literally to a sleeping world. Everyone is in bed. More than this though, it's the angels who understand the best what's actually happening that night. The shepherds are sitting in their field, clueless about what's about to happen to them. But the angels have been given a message. And they deliver that message. These are the heavenly beings, think about it, who have spent their entire existence in the presence of Almighty God. That's what angels do when they're not delivering messages. They're in God's presence, worshiping and praising Him. You can kind of think of it as this way. This, this group of angels that appears to the shepherds, they're kind of the definition of a, of a crowd that's hard to impress. <laughs> They've seen some pretty impressive things in their day. But they're beyond impressed in Luke chapter 2. They're teeming with excitement. The, the first angel comes and he speaks of good news, of great joy. And there's this electric scene taking place. Electric because these messengers are realizing the magnitude of the incarnation in the message they deliver. At what point does God bring the angels in on what's happening? We don't know. Does he give them the message and send them down, and they're just like sitting there delivering the message as their minds are exploding? The Messiah, the Word, is, is a baby? They've communed with the pre-incarnate Son. For their entire existence. They've worshipped him. The word of God. The eternal word. The exact imprint of the father's nature. And now. They've declared. The word's birth. That the one who holds the cosmos together. Has been placed. Think of that. Placed, set in a manger. The one who cloaks the heavens with stars is is wrapped in swaddling clothes. You know what swaddling clothes are for? It's these like linen strips that they would take and the midwife would take them and you'd you'd bind the baby because in that day you thought you had to bind the baby tightly, put their arms straight. You know, a baby comes out of the womb and it's all curled up in that fetal position. And so the thought process in the day was you bind them in swaddling clothes to straighten them out and help them grow correctly. The the eternal word is is not only going to be born, it's going to be bound in swaddling clothes to make sure the eternal word grows the right way. And then this single angel is joined by a host 
that bursts onto the scene. And, and this is where we have to fight that it doesn't become ordinary that these angels appear on the scene. It's not ordinary to the shepherds. They burst onto the scene declaring God's glory in the heavens and peace to all those who are recipients of His grace. Now, here's the thing. We kind of think a heavenly host is like, it's a big heavenly choir, right? That's not what heavenly host means. No, host means army. This is an angelic horde bursting onto the scene. These are heaven's warriors. These, these powerful, magnificent, angelic beings, powerful enough as an army to wipe the field with any enemy, any army they were to encounter in the history of the world. And this army shows up in front of the shepherds, declaring glory to God, and this army declares peace. Peace to all who enjoy God's gracious favor. The angels are consumed with the magnitude of the moment. These are beings, Job tells us, that have witnessed the creation of the world. They saw the Grand Canyon get cut. They saw Everest rise. These are beings who witnessed the tragedy of the fall as their own fallen brethren, Satan tempted the shining achievement of God's creation, humanity, into rebellion and sin. These are also the only beings in the story who really have nothing at stake in the Messiah being born. They're not sinful. They're not fallen. They sit under no condemnation. But they've seen humanity for generations and centuries, languishing in sin. Derek referred to it during worship in Isaiah 25, sitting under the veil of death. And now, before their eyes, the long-awaited climax of redemption playing out. Electric doesn't really begin to describe the scene. It's what the angels see and experience. But they bring this message to an unlikely audience, right? This, this heavenly army declaring peace to those who find favor with God bring the message to the shepherds. And it's in the shepherds, along with other details in the story, that we start to see the incredible humility of the incarnation itself. Not just the way the word become flesh is humbled, but the way everything about this story speaks to the way God brings low the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Enter the shepherds. The good news just gets better. God's making a statement in the details of the Messiah's birth. He's born in little Bethlehem, insignificant town. He's born to an unmarried teenager. This teenager is betrothed to a carpenter. The entire scene is meant to show and to underscore the angel's message that this gospel, this good news, is not just for the great, not just for the powerful. No, it's for all people. 
shepherds, here's the thing, shepherds aren't a glorious class of people. As much as I liked having the shepherd's staff so I could whack my brother in the back with it when we did the Christmas programs, you didn't actually want to be a shepherd in real life. And there's all sorts of reasons for this. Shepherds have no esteem in this culture and this society. If you're a good shepherd and you don't want your sheep to die and you don't want to starve to death, you've got to spend time tending your sheep, right? And if you tend your sheep, you're like these shepherds sleeping with them in the middle of the night, which means you smell like your sheep. Sheep don't smell fresh. Not only do shepherds stink, they're regarded by everyone in this society with the deepest suspicion. If you're a shepherd, you can't even give testimony in court. You're not allowed to testify in the court of law. And the reason is they're considered pathological liars. That, that's, the, that's the reason. It's not because of their BO they're not allowed into the court. It's because you're a shepherd, and shepherds are known for stealing sheep from other shepherds' flocks. Shepherds are known for grazing their flocks on other people's land. And so you're just a dishonest person. It doesn't matter who you actually are. If you're a shepherd, that's what's understood about you. Not only that, because you're with the sheep all the time, you're ceremonially unclean. Most of the time, these shepherds can't enter into the temple or the synagogues. They can't participate in the religious life of the community. And they're also nomadic. They don't even have homes to put down roots. These are a group of people inherently cut off from the actual community. They're suspicious. So good, God-fearing, temple-attending Jews naturally disdained shepherds. And that's where the announcement of Christ's birth first comes. The angels don't go to the palace. They don't go to Jerusalem. They don't go to the high priest. They don't go to the scripture-loving Pharisees. They don't go to the elders of Bethlehem. They don't go to the most important people of that little town. They go to the often ignored shepherds. And you have to note here, too, this is the beauty of Luke. He's telling the story like it is. If you're trying to, to give a history, to, to give an origins account, you might be tempted to improve the story. We want people to really believe that this happened. So who are the first people these angels appear to? Well, shepherds wouldn't be who you'd put forward. <laughs> the angels appear to a bunch of liars. Believe what they said about the baby. But it's in that you see Luke being careful with the history. If you want to get in your head what a shepherd is, if you're from Missouri, just imagine your stereotype of a hick from Kansas. If you're from Kansas, just flip the analogy, right? However many teeth you assume they don't have across the state line, that's what's going on when they think about the shepherds. But the angels bring the message to these poor, uneducated, social outcasts. This Savior truly has come for all people. And I love how these worthless, irreligious, sinful, stinking sheep herders respond. Once they get over their fear, literally you could translate it, they're terrified by fear. Once they get over their fear, they obey immediately and set off for Bethlehem. Now you think, well, man, they were confronted by a heavenly army. <laughs> Is it really that cool a thing? Well, think about this, though. Their whole life they've been programmed to think 
you are an outcast. You don't really come into the city without invitation. I, I think of the births constantly happening at Providence, right? There's a lot of babies being born, and so we spend a lot of times visiting people in the hospital, and it's really fun. But what's the one thing you're constantly doing when you're visiting mothers in the hospital? Going over to the side of the room, right, and you're, you're pushing the little thing and sanitizing your hands. You feel like you're supposed to, like, bathe in it before you get in there. These are, these are sanitary places. You don't want dirty individuals coming to visit mothers who have just given birth. Most moms don't want people fresh in from the fields visiting their babies. And so they get this call to go, and you've got to wonder, are they thinking, does she, does she really want us there? What's she going to do when, when we come? But they're not dissuaded. To behold this Messiah that the angels have announced is not something to miss. Because they're going to see this baby, Christ the Lord. We would completely miss the point of the text if we didn't talk about the main character, right? This text isn't primarily about Caesar. It's not about the angels. It's not about Mary and Joseph. It's not about the shepherds. It's not about the little people and animals you have in your nativity. What happened to our donkey? Where's our camel? Where's the cow? When you set up the nativity, the thing you care about is that Jesus is in the middle of the nativity. That's the character. Christ, the Lord. That's a Greek word for Messiah. It signifies God's anointed has arrived. Luke is telling us in his gospel, a king has been born. It's fulfillment. It's fulfillment of a prophecy given generations ago to David. In 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8, we read, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is the Lord giving the prophet these words, Thus says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom forever. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house, David, your kingdom, David, shall be made forever before me. Your throne, David, shall be established forever. The arrival of this baby is the arrival of Christ, of the Messiah. The long-awaited king has finally been born. A king in David's city. He's Israel's long-awaited hope. It's not just a new king. It's not just any king. It's the king of kings. The Jesus Storybook Bible says, God's forever king. And this Christ, this Messiah, the angel reveals to these shepherds, is Christ the Lord. Now, the angels don't mean to declare that this baby, the one who's born king the Lord, they're not meaning king the ruler. You you don't double down by, he's king and a ruler. 
that's just kind of implied. If you're a king, you rule things. No, they mean something much more significant. They're not just being repetitive and backwards with the title. By declaring the Savior to be Christ the Lord, the angels are declaring that this little baby is divine. Again, 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now, therefore, you shall go to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts. The Lord signifies God's covenant name, Yahweh. The name that he reveals to Abraham as as the great I am. This name is so reverential that in Scripture, in the Old Testament, they actually wouldn't translate it. When you'd read your Scriptures, read your Old Testament Scriptures in this day, when you'd sit there in the synagogue, and every time you'd come across that covenant name, they would substitute the word Adonai, translated Lord, in place of it. So 2 Samuel 7, 8 actually reads, Thus says Yahweh of hosts. Now, when the Greek Septuagint, think of like the ESV of their day, just the common translation of their day. Some of them couldn't speak Hebrew, they could speak Greek, it's the lingua franca of the day. When they would read their Greek Septuagints and they would come across that covenant name, it would be translated in their Greek as Lord. Angel of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. Each time you encounter that phrase, The Lord, you're thinking, God's covenant name. This angel declares, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, verse 11, a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. There's no mistaking the declaration. God's heavenly messenger, God's mouthpiece, is declaring that the forever king, the Christ, is God himself. When you read your New Testament and you come across references to Christ as Lord, it's staking claims to Christ's divinity. Christ, Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. And just in case we doubt the words of one angel, Luke tells us a heavenly host of angels comes to underscore the majesty of the moment. Now think about the significance of that. This is fulfilling 2 Samuel 7, right? Where Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, gives a message to give to David. And now, in the fulfillment of that promise to the shepherds, God sends his messenger, his herald, his mouthpiece, to declare that this Christ, this Messiah, is God. And he backs up the statement, the Lord of hosts, by sending his hosts to declare that the Messiah is the Lord of hosts. These angels are declaring the birth of their God. God has told the shepherds their forever king, our forever king, is God. That famous passage, Isaiah 9, 6, being referenced, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice 
and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. The passion of Yahweh of hosts for the glory of his own name will do this. Will ensure that the baby born in Bethlehem isn't just a human heir to David's throne. But God incarnate. The Christ has arrived. And it's Emmanuel. God with us. The forever king is God almighty. But the eternal king is also born. Luke 2 isn't just celebrating the arrival of a baby. The angels are marveling. They're worshiping in the plan of God to not only come to earth, but to come to earth as a man. It's not just that God is drawing near. It's that God is drawing near as a human, fully human fully divine. Yahweh himself, God eternal, in the second person, has become fully man without becoming any less God. He's taken on flesh. The eternal word has added full humanity to his person. This shouldn't seem expected when we read Luke 2. Here's this fully human baby who is also fully divine human mind, a human body, human emotions, human frailty, a human will, human weakness. Luke tells us this has happened because he's come as a savior. Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior. The great news of the incarnation is that Jesus comes to save and to restore us to joy, to rescue us from death, and to return us to fellowship with God. If the arrival of the Messiah, the onset of the incarnation of God, merely meant God was coming to earth to reign and to rule, but not to save, this would not be good news. The angels wouldn't come saying, Peace! holy God would be coming to dwell with his fallen, unholy creation. But, Titus 3, 4 says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Just think of what that sentence says. What does the baby's birth exemplify? When the baby is born, it is the appearance of the goodness and loving kindness of our God. There is no other place in all the scriptures to go that more clearly articulates and paints the picture of God's goodness and his loving kindness, his mercy, and his immeasurable grace to us than what he does in sending his son, Jesus. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That goodness and loving kindness comes and appears 
in a baby Savior. You think back to what Derek read earlier this morning in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will swallow up the covering that is death that is cast over all the peoples. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will cover up the veil that is spread over all nations. He, the Lord of hosts, will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That happens. Because in his wisdom, and in his goodness, and in his mercy, And in his providence, he has made the eternal word alive so that he can die. That's how the veil of death is dealt with. That's what's blowing the angels' minds. A baby savior is born so one day that baby can grow into a man and bear our condemnation and stand in our place and suffer the wrath of God so that we can be saved. Here's the concluding point. What do we do in response to these characters? What what do we emulate? How, How do we process what we see them doing? Luke 2 is this well-known passage, right? We are familiar with it. If we're not careful, we're overly familiar with it. If we're not careful, this, this passage gets stripped of its breathtaking wonder and its profound magnificence. And so you can come to Luke 2 and you can just have this ho-hum attitude. The reason for ho-hum attitudes isn't that Luke doesn't do a good job telling the story. The reason you come to Luke 2 and you've read it for the hundredth time, and you're not amazed, the fault with that isn't Luke's giftedness as a narrator. It's not the Holy Spirit inspiring, but not inspiring enough. The issue is your own heart. Your heart that's been calloused and and sinfully overly familiarized. So think of the angels. They behold the glory of God every moment of their existence. That's what they do. And yet, at the announcement of the Messiah's birth, they are bursting with praise. They're exploding with praise. The only beings in the story who don't need saving are just over the top at the glory of God displayed in this baby that men, that rebels, that sinful people can be reclaimed and washed and renewed and saved and ushered back into His grace and back into His kingdom. We're supposed to encounter this message and ponder it and praise That's the nice thing about the angelic host. It's an army, right? And they sing praises. So I don't care what your profession is. I don't care what your disposition or temperament. Whether you're super Swedish and just overly Scandinavian and and proper. 
when we come to consider these things, we should respond like the angels. We should worship. We should wonder. We should praise. And we should consider the shepherds. Even better than the example of their immediate initial obedience, going to visit the baby, going to visit the mother, whether she wants their dirty, ragged lot there or not, even better is how they react afterwards. Luke says, everyone who heard the story wonders at what they're saying. Two things are happening. A, they can't contain what they've seen. They can't help but share the good news. They can't help but pass it on. And everyone wonders. In the way they pass it on, it's not begrudgingly. It's not in an embarrassed fashion. It's in such a way that as people hear their witness and hear their testimony as proven liars in society, they overcome prejudices that these are liars and they are wondering in amazement that this has happened. I I just think of Seth's word this morning about Tyler's father sharing the gospel again for the countless time over 20 years. You share the gospel because you're amazed by the gospel. You share the gospel in a compelling way because you're stunned that God offers grace and forgiveness to people in his son Jesus. I don't get the sense that the shepherds go and talk about this for two days. I get the sense that when little Billy is a shepherd 20 years from now, he's sitting with the old shepherds and they're telling him the story of that one night. When this itinerant preacher is wandering through the land, the shepherds are telling the other people in the villages, we know who that is. The angels told us when he was born. That's the Messiah. I love this this quote. Jonathan Edwards says, The soul is exceedingly ravished when it first looks on the beauty of Christ. The soul is exceedingly ravished when it first looks on the beauty of Christ. And then the last sentence of this quote, which sums up the angels in their eternal experience and the shepherds in the rest of their lives. And the soul is never weary of him. Let Luke 2 stir up wonder and worship and a contagious passion to share this good news with a world that is perishing. Let the world see the exceeding beauty Christ. Lord, send your spirit to awaken affections in our hearts, to help us to see and comprehend the full glorious beauty of the gospel of the incarnation. Lord, let it be as brilliant to us now as it was the first hour we believed. Lord, let your Spirit take us deeper into the glories of what you accomplished in redeeming us through sending your Son. Holy Spirit, come and empower wonder 
stir up worship and send us out as your witnesses. Testifying that you have sent your son Jesus as a display of your goodness and your mercy that all who trust in him will not be put to shame. We pray this in your name, Father, in the name of Jesus.